helping people to really grasp the story about which we have been singing is the most significant and it's the most thrilling thing that a human being could really ever do. I spent 10 years of my youth uh, working in uh, Knox County, Ohio, trying to uh, start a church, starting a church there in Knox County, Ohio, and trying to influence people for the Lord. And I wanted to get to know people. So one of the things that I did was I uh, wanted to, to mix it up with my family and with families, other families. So we, I coached baseball. And uh, with all the families that were uh, connected with those little baseball players, I, I tried to have an influence for the Lord. I tried to conscientiously pray for each of them. I tried to conscientiously kind of work through their lives. There was a drug dealer. There was a car dealer. There were the Donigans and the Campbells and the Zimmermans. And let me tell you about him, the drug dealer, first of all. He, he was actually a pharmaceutical salesman, but I always like to say he was a drug dealer because it sounds so much cooler that way. His name was Gary. Gary was a pretty self-confident guy. He made, made good money, had a nice house. And, and when I tried to talk to him about the things of the Lord, it was always like, well, that's your religion and I got mine. And he, didn't, he wasn't really... Gary wasn't really very, very open to that. And then there were the Campbells, and she was a believer, and he was an unbeliever. And so there was a sort of a special fraternity there, and I tried to influence him for the Lord, and she really, really appreciated that, I know. The Donigans were believers, and they were new in town, and they actually started coming to our church. And I met Dan Donigan. He was a school guidance counselor, and I met him one morning a week, and we would pray together and kind of have a little discipleship thing, pray together. And one day we, were, we kind of got together. We were kind of plotting how we could somehow introduce the other people to, to the Lord, uh, like, for instance, the, the Zimmermans. Well, the Donigans had the gift of hospitality, and uh, it was easy for them to invite people over to their house and, and uh, make nice things to eat, and just it wasn't really hard for them at all. And, and I like to, uh, to teach and exhort and make the gospel clear. They said, hey, why don't we invite the, any families on the baseball team over to our house, and you can do a six-week Bible study on the basic message of the Bible, and they'll come over one hour a week for six weeks, and they did, and, and they did that. So they opened their home for that, and it was pretty neat. Campbells came. Donigans were there, some others. Uh, the Zimmermans were there. Zach was the kid. Uh, Julie uh, was the boy on the team. Uh, Scott and Julie uh, were the parents, and they came. I remember Julie in particular really having some real probing questions about the Bible. What I did was I started in Genesis. I talked about creation. I talked about the law of God. eventually got to the gospel. On the last, and we kind of wove the gospel in the last three or four sessions. On the very last session that we had of those six weeks, it was kind of neat, because Dan and, and Barb Donigan had a beautiful testimony of how they came to know the Lord as their Savior. And so on the last night of the Bible study, they just told their story. It was very, uh, it was just an anointed time. You can kind of tell when you were there. Uh, it was just like, I just sit back and I watch the faces of these people who had been coming now for six weeks, listen to Dan and Barb about how God had changed their lives. And I remember, and, and my oldest son Kyle at the time was coming along kind of doing child care in the basement. So the kids would go down there and he would play ball with them and do things and try to keep them quiet and, and well behaved. And we drove home that night after our sixth Bible lesson, after our little evangelistic Bible study, we drove home. It didn't fall of the year and it was dark out. And as we drove along, I, I, I think I'll always remember the feeling that I had. I had the most powerful feeling in my heart, that I had done something really good, that I had been involved in something really, really good. As I just drove home, I remember telling Kyle, Kyle, 
I'm not sure I will ever get closer to the heart of real ministry than what we just did because we sat down with these people and we loved them and they listened and we answered their questions and we made the gospel clear to them. And I have delivered myself of responsibility to some degree because I, ha- I know that I did what I could to make the gospel clear to them. And yet there were none of them in that group responded to believe and to pray to receive Christ as their Savior. But there's no other work in the entire world. No matter what happens, it's more exciting. That's more fulfilling. That's more in the heart of things than that. And there are no stories. I don't think there are stories that I have ever heard anywhere about anything. I, I don't care what kind of adventure you're talking about. I don't care how much money is involved. There are no stories to me that are more exciting than stories about how people got converted. Am I right? I mean, I just don't know of any. If you were here last Sunday night, you heard a whole bunch of people tell the story about how they came to faith in Christ. Lots of tears were shed. Lots of joy. Lots of laughter. Those are awesome stories. Now, what would you say, if we were going to look through the book of Acts, and we're going to find conversion stories in the book of Acts, what would you say is the most remarkable conversion story in the book of Acts? Anybody want to venture a guess? Yes, I saw that. Saul of Tarsus, Paul. The conversion of Saul is one of the most amazing. It's got a lot of ink in the, in the, in the uh, Luke's uh, record there in the book of Acts. A lot of ink. As a matter of fact, the story is told there in chapter 9 of Acts, but it's repeated a couple of times. He repeats it a couple of times. It's a big deal, the conversion of Paul. And that's what we're going to look at here. What a remarkable conversion it was. Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the church, as you know, persecuted people. And yet God came in a miraculous way and completely changed his life. I want you to notice a couple of things that were involved in the conversion of Paul. One is, if you read it, and we will in just a minute, you've got to admit that Paul's conversion was not just like he changed his mind about something, right? Paul's conversion was a miracle. It was a miracle. And you read about what it says in the Bible. Paul didn't just like have a difference of opinion or, or kind of an intellectual enlightenment. Paul was converted by God in a miracle. If you don't believe me, let's just read what the Bible says. This is in Acts and chapter 9. And the first few verses, Then Saul, breathing, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he... Uh, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He is aggressively, he's so convinced, he's a religious guy, and he's so deeply convinced that he's right, that he's going to go and get disciples that, that they persecuted away from Jerusalem, that went 130 miles away to Damascus. He's got official letters so that he can go and get them and drag them back for trial. This guy is hardcore. He seriously does believe what he believes. He's wrong, but he's convinced that he's right. Well, what's going to happen? Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How many of you would say, that's a miracle? That's a miracle, right? So how many of you would say, I think I would get converted if that happened to me? That's a miracle. He said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, 
Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is quite a story. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and, he, and, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and, in, and pu- putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. This is kind of like when you stand in the living room and there's a mirror on this side and there's a mirror on this side. And you look at the mirrors, it looks like you're in a tunnel. This is a guy seeing a vision in a vision. You got to read that this afternoon to catch on that. It's a vision in a vision. Ananias says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Ananias is like, are you really, are you serious? This guy is dangerous. He kills people. He has people killed. Verse 14, here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him before the Gentiles. That's a shock, by the way. For the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. This is a lot of twists and turns in it, and we're not even really going to preach on this today. This is just the story of Saul's conversion. But what I want to, what I want to say today here, what I want to ask, and what I want to examine, I want you to think about today is, what did it take for Saul to get saved? Now, we already admit, just from reading the story, what did it take? It took a miracle. It took a miracle. And I'm going to tell you something here. If you want to influence people for the Lord, none of them are going to get saved unless there's a miracle. It may not be quite like this, but it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It requires a miracle for a person to be converted, for a person to really come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They become a new person. A whole bunch of things happen that no human being can do. It's not just turning over a new leaf. It's not just becoming religious. It's not just joining a church. It's a miracle. Your desires change. The direction of your life changes. Your sins are forgiven. Your eternal destiny is different. Being saved is a completely different thing than like joining some kind of religious club. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And we was, last Sunday night, as we just heard the stories, you realize one of the things that makes this church so very special, and any other Bible preaching church in our area or any other area really special, is because it's not people who are religious people that have kind of gathered together with a similar prejudice. No, it's people whose lives have been changed because they're born again. They're saved, a miracle happened in their life, they're different, and they join together in fellowship. That's a big deal different than any kind of like a union or a club or some kind of fraternity or sorority or anything else. It is God's people whose lives have been changed by a miracle. Now, that's really true in Saul's life. You can see that just by the, the cursory reading that we've given this text. But let me ask you a question now. All of us agree that the Bible teaches that Saul's conversion was a miracle. The teaching of the Bible is that Saul's conversion was a miracle, no doubt about it. But was anything else involved in Saul's conversion besides this miracle? Was anything else going on in his life? Did anything else contribute to his salvation besides this miracle? Was it just that? Did his salvation just kind of drop down out of heaven? Bang! And he's saved, and that's how it works? And is the application from this, well then, 
Just pray for miracles to happen? I would say that's true. Pray for miracles to happen. But is there anything else that happened? Can I make a suggestion to you? If we back up a little bit and we go to Acts chapter 6, I want to suggest to you today that it was not just a miracle, but there was a martyr involved. There was a martyr involved. And the, the, the Greek word there means a witness. But it obviously means a real serious witness because there was a man who is in the narrative, uh, Luke's narrative, definitely in a literary way connected very clearly to Saul of Tarsus. What was his name? His name was Stephen. Stephen influenced Saul, and I believe he influenced Saul in probably at least three ways. One, I believe it's possible that Saul heard Stephen's initial defense in the synagogue of the freedmen. The Bible doesn't specifically say that, but I think by uh, conjecture it would not be unusual for that to have happened. I'll explain that in just a minute. The other thing is that we know that when Stephen gave a defense and no one could back him down, he was drug off before the Sanhedrin or before the council, and Saul was present there. So Saul was probably present to hear, or maybe even he was the guy they brought in as kind of the hitman in order to argue against Stephen, and Stephen stood him down, and he had the face of an angel in his defense. This is Stephen, right? Given the defense of Christ, and he has a face of an angel in doing it. This is kind of cool. And uh, it's recorded there in the Bible. Who told Luke that? Did the Holy Spirit just tell Luke that? Perhaps. Luke Was Luke present? No, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Saul who said, I saw this defense in the synagogue of the freedmen, when he said that, nobody could argue with him. He was full of wisdom. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a deacon in the church who was used of God as a witness that no one could deny. And when he gave that defense of Christ, he had the look of an angel on his face. This was passed along. I think one of the reasons we know, I think Saul was involved there. I think Saul was involved there before the Sanhedrin. And we know that Saul was there and even contributing to the death of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, because at the end of Stephen's impassioned speech, they kill him. And they say, and the scriptures say, they put their, to keep their robes from becoming splattered with Stephen's blood, they put them at the feet of Saul. And in a literary form that no one should ever overlook, Luke ties together the life of Saul and of Stephen. What am I saying? I'm saying this, if anybody gets saved, it's because there's a miracle and there's a witness involved. There's a martyr involved. There's somebody who's taking seriously the message of Jesus Christ, who's living it out even unto the death in front of them, who knows the story of Jesus and who can tell the story of Jesus Christ. That's what happens. People's lives get changed when that happens. A miracle and a martyr. A miracle and a witness. The miracle is in Acts 9, 1 through 31, and the whole rest of the book of Acts and throughout Christian history. The martyr is Stephen, his character, his witness before the synagogue, before the Sanhedrin. He is one of the most attractive, one of the most charismatic figures of the Bible. Stephen shoots across the sky of scriptural narrative like a bright meteor. He is something here. And you read it, look, take a look in Acts chapter 6, and I'll, we'll just kind of go over in the scriptures what I just said to you. But you'll see he was one of the ones that was chosen to minister to the Grecian widows, the Grecian women. 
He was uh, willing to serve. He had a good reputation. Verse 3, he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Verse 3, Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. In verse 5, it says the saying pleased the multitude. They chose Stephen, who was a man. He was not only full of, he had a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. But here it says in verse 5, he was full of faith. And again, it says, full of the Holy Spirit. And these, uh, these others with him, they set them before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We believe these were the first deacons of the church. These men were spirit filled, filled with wisdom, men who loved the Lord, humble men willing to serve God. These are the kind of men. Think of that when you have men like this. Something exciting and really special is having that we ought to aspire if we're men to be those kind of men, if we're women to be those kind of women. And verse 8 says, Stephen, full of faith. Now we see he's got a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, full of faith and full of power, did great wonders and signs among the people. This was a time in the history of the church when there was a great outpouring of spiritual signs and wonders to confirm the apostolic message. They weren't able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Wouldn't you love to have seen that? Here was Stephen, a humble server guy who was also full of faith and wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit and knowledge about the Bible and able to communicate. And he stands and he communicates the truth about God. And they weren't able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. So what did they do? Well, they hit below the belt. That's what they did. They knew they were completely out of their league, and so they suborned witnesses. They, they, they bribed people to lie about him and drag him before the Sanhedrin. And so when they did that, he knew he was in big trouble, and he got really quiet, and he didn't say anymore, right? Right? Are you tracking with me? You're not just like waiting for lunch here, are you? It's going to be a while. I'm not done yet. No. He didn't, he's, he just, he lights up the board with a message that is rich with scripture and Old Testament reference. And he just began, and it has a very clear central truth. So here's Stephen now, he's before the Sanhedrin, they're dragging him before the Sanhedrin and they have lied to get him there. So he just gives them a history lesson on Israel. And it's really kind of coy. What he basically says is, well, you guys know this is true. It's kind of inductive. You know, this is true, right? And they're, they're like, yeah, yeah. This is what God did, and then this God raised up a leader, and then the leader was rejected, and they're like, yeah, that's bad. they all in agreement. And then God did this, he raised up another leader, and then that leader was rejected, and you can almost kind of hear the audience going, yeah, that's bad, it was bad people. And then again, he says, then he raised up Moses, and Moses was rejected, and you can hear the people saying, that's bad. And then he kind of turns the corner in his speech, and he says something kind of interesting. In verse 51, he goes, you, stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and hard of ears, always resist the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did. So did you. It's kind of like a happy talk he was giving them. Kind of a happy talk, right? Stiff-necked, uncircumcised. He says the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin guys are proud of their circumcision and all the stuff that goes along with it. Because you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised. You're just like them. In other words, here's his message. His message was every time God raised up a real prophet, he was rejected and you did the same thing to Jesus. And when he turned that corner in his message and said you did the same thing to Jesus, it was like he was in serious trouble then. He was in serious trouble. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Verse 40, 52. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom now you've become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. 
So you heard all this, your fathers, and you're just like them, and you're rejecting them, and they did not like this message. This was not a happy message. They didn't come forward later and go, can I have a CD of that? Can we get that on video so that my kids can watch that before they go to bed at night? It wasn't like that. They're like, oh, they were mad. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. He, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And what did he see when he gazed into heaven? (laughs) This is interesting. He saw the glory of God, and he saw He saw Jesus. Where was Jesus? He's standing on the right hand of God. And so what does he do? He tells them. (laughs) As if he's not in enough trouble already. He's going, and Jesus, that you persecuted, oh, he's up there on the right hand of God right now. This is serious bad for him. It's true, but he's just saying what he saw. He's seeing God, seeing the Lord Jesus on the right hand of God. And that was enough. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1 says, Saul was consenting to his death. Now don't kid yourself. If you read this Bible carefully here, you see that two things contributed to Saul's conversion. One was a miracle, and the other was Stephen's witness, a martyr. It was the witness of Stephen, and that's the way it always has been, and that's the way it always will be. God uses miracles, and God uses martyrs, human agents, witnesses, people that are really serious, bold witnesses, convinced witnesses, people who are willing to die, people that are witnesses unto death, people that will not change their story. God uses miracles and martyr witnesses like this in a process that leads to conversion. So if we want to fill that balcony, and if we want to stir those baptismal waters, and if we want to see a stream of sweet people that don't know Jesus coming in that door, and we're waiting for them, it's going to be because God did a miracle, and because He's got some witnesses here. Some people who are willing to talk about that, who are serious about that, who are bold about that, who are convinced about it. I mean, different people, different gifts, different temperaments, but God's people who are witnesses, it's going to require that. It requires preparation. People that are going to have to understand the story of God, be a witness of his miracles. Uh, People who care about lost people, people who pray. Stephen dies praying and God answers his prayer in a way that humanly he would never have known that he would answer his prayer. That's the kind of witnesses that we have to have if we want to see conversions. We've got to see miracles from God and we've got to have witnesses who prepare themselves to tell the story of Jesus, put themselves in a place to influence other people who are prayerful, spirit-filled, filled with power and wisdom kind of people. I want to be that kind of person. And I don't think it's wrong for me to say to you, you ought to pray before you leave today. God, would you please make me that kind of person? I have a goal in this series between now and Easter, and it is this, that you will not only desire to be involved in this most thrilling and important business in all the world of influencing other people, but that you will believe that God really can use you the way he made you to influence somebody. And wouldn't it be wonderful if God did fill the balcony with people like that and stir the baptismal waters? And we have old stories to tell and we have new stories to tell. And who knows the, the concentric you know, circles that go out from that? Who's going to be there? Who would have known that when Saul was converted, thousands would be converted because Saul was converted? Who would have known that probably there are descendants, spiritual descendants of Saul sitting here in the room this morning because Saul believed there are people here who believe? Now, that's pretty exciting when you think about it. Now, can you please tell me, what hobby do you have that's more fun than that? 
What sport do you play that's more important than that? What do you do in your life that's got more weight in it? Why are people often discouraged and depressed and they don't have uh, any, any reason to live? Because they're not doing the kinds of things that God says are thrilling. I would suggest to you that you might try that. It's prepar- it requires preparation. It's a process. It's not always immediate. There are different people that are, that are involved. It's a team effort. It's not a Lone Ranger thing. But you can read the influence of Stephen between the lines of Saul's life until the day he dies. Let me give you some examples from the Bible. Acts 22, 4 and 5. Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. The high priest bears me witness in all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Later in his life, Paul's thinking about this. Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to Jesus, the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. They were put away to death. I cast my vote against them. Verse 10, verse 11. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I went and this guy was he thought he was right. And it was it was a jihad for him. It was a holy war for him. He was going after them and God completely changed him. But he never forgot it. His accomplishments he forgot, forgetting those things which he says, that the, the things which were before were the, his accomplishments. He set them aside, and he didn't go through his life with his thumbs under his lapels bragging about what he accomplished. But he continuously reminded people of what he did that was wrong. Because this was, this elevated, God. now listen to me. Some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, you know, this is church, and i got to try to be religious, and, but i got these bad things that I'm ashamed of, and I don't want anybody to know about. No, no, that's your story right there. That's how wonderful Jesus is. The things that he has forgiven you for. The things that you did in ignorance and the things that you did in unbelief. The things that you did when you didn't know that Jesus was God and worthwhile. Those things of which you are now ashamed, they are now become a part of your testimony. Once you get to Calvary, you say, you don't give details. He didn't give lurid details, but he gave enough detail to say, I was a persecutor. I was injurious. I was a blasphemer. But God in his grace, that was always the next verse in the song for Paul. But God's grace reached down into my life in a miracle. And you can always kind of read between the lines in Paul's testimony, and you can see that God used Stephen. Here in 1 Corinthians 15.9, I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. In Galatians 1.13, you've heard from my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. In Philippians 3 and verse 6, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. In 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceeding abundant in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. I believe Saul heard Stephen's arguments, saw his angelic face in the synagogue of the freedmen. I do. I believe Saul listened to Stephen's sermon. I believe, and we know, Saul watched Stephen die. Saul heard Stephen's prayer. Saul even hinted about that for the rest of his life. Paul later on called Stephen a martyr. The word that witnessed martyr, Acts 22.20, he says, this is Paul speaking, when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed... I also was standing by, consenting to his death, guarding the clothes of those that were killing him. There's a detail here that I didn't see before earlier in the narrative. It's in this part of the narrative. The blood is there. Saul says, never got the 
the blood of Stephen that he shed as a martyr out of his mind. I don't doubt that Paul saw Stephen's radiant face and he heard his passionate preaching and his dying prayer for the rest of his life. God used Stephen in the conversion of Saul and God used Paul in the conversion of multitudes. No one knows, no one knows the life that will come from a seed that's sown in the spread of the gospel. That's why you ought to, in your own way, even though you might not have done much with it before, and you may not feel like you're Billy Graham, you ought to get involved in that somehow. Inviting people to church, loving on somebody, talking to a neighbor, giving a gift to somebody, somehow figure out some way to get involved in this most exciting business on planet Earth, because there's nothing more exciting, nothing more significant, nothing more important, nothing more fulfilling than being involved in that. I want to give you some suggestions about how you can do that. You can probably come up with some others. But I want you to have three symbols in your mind. I mentioned them already. I want you to have that balcony as a symbol in your mind. God led us to build that, us meaning people before me. And it ought to be full of people. That's what it ought to be. So all kinds of people around here, thousands and thousands of them. We ought to ask God, God, this may, we may end up with egg on our face. We may really talk big about that. But I will just say this. As long as I'm the pastor of this church, I'm going to ask God, would you please fill that balcony full of people who need you? Not because i got a big ego. Not because I want to have a big church. But because there's so many people around here. So many people around here that really ought to have what you and I enjoy in the forgiveness of sins in a way to order your life. There's so many dear people, precious people around here. And they are not people, all of them, who are continually shaking their fists. Some of them are shaking their fists, but it's in ignorance and unbelief. They're ignorant. And they're in darkness. They don't understand. And if the lights would go on, they'd be changed. I want you to keep that balcony in mind. And I want you to help me fill it. I think that's a bold. God wants to do bold things for him. I don't think that's an appropriate thing. You should like be saying amen. That's the amen part. Okay, when I say it again, you guys say amen, okay? So we come back to that, and I get there, you're like, amen. I know you're thinking, you're thinking, I don't know, that's a big balcony, it's a lot of people. Well, we don't want people to go to hell. We don't just say to people, well, go to hell. You know, I'm happy, I'm Christian, I got a Christian family, I sing my nice songs, you just go to hell. Right? You want to say that? Right? No, you want to say, come to heaven with me. Understand that God can help you with your hurt. He can help you divorce. He can help you with your family. He can help you with the pain in your life. He can help you break the addictions that have so bothered you. God, Jesus can deliver you from those things. You don't know it. These people they look really nice. Sitting around here, they look all Christian and nice and everything. You don't know the stories that they have to tell about what God delivered them from. And God can deliver you too. And there are people out there that are not going to hear us here. We're going to have to go take it to them somehow. Somehow we've got to take it to them. Keep the balcony in your mind. Keep the baptistry in your mind. It ought to be never moldy baptistry. Always fresh water. Stirring the waters all the time. People coming through the baptismal waters. Who needs to get baptized now? Some of you here say you're followers of Jesus. You're not baptized. I just tell you, you're not baptized. You're not a follower of Jesus. Don't tell me you are. I love you. I'm not being mean. I'm just don't say it. Don't go around saying I'm a follower of Jesus. But the first thing he said to do, you won't do. You're not a follower of Jesus until you follow the Lord in baptism. I mean, just take the book of Acts now. Read it on your own. This isn't like a Baptist thing. Look at all of the stories in the book of Acts. What happens after people believe? They get baptized. That's what Jesus says. Now, I say that to you just to kind of rattle your cage and get you going. Maybe you're a young person who said, Dad, Mom, I want to follow the Lord in baptism. I'm a believer. I want to be baptized. What the Bible teaches is what Jesus says. Don't look for something fancy. This is what he said. And so think about that. Those baptismal waters ought to be stirred. We ought to be hearing stories all the time of people who came to faith in Jesus Christ and give evidence publicly that they're followers of Jesus Christ by following. Wouldn't it be something if we had to just keep that full all the time and we're constantly baptizing people on Sunday morning, on a Sunday night? That would be something, wouldn't it? 
Some of you are sitting there thinking, Pastor, you really think you're a big gun that you can get that baptism full of people? Not in the slightest. I have no personal ability that way. I just know this. Jesus is my Savior. He's worthy. Thousands of people are around here who don't know their right hand from their left spiritually. We have the gospel and we can pray and we can ask God and we can go before the Lord and say, use me somehow, God. I don't feel adequate to go reach multitudes for you, but I will do what you ask me to do. I have some suggestions. Here's a third symbol I want you to keep in your mind. Keep the balcony in your mind. Keep the baptistry in your mind. And that hallway right there. That hallway right there. Here's why. I think as a church, one of the simplest things that we can do, and over the years it's worked, and that is just invite people to church. Invite people to church. Let them watch us worship our God. Let them hear what thrills our soul. Let them get a thirst and a hunger and let their eyes be open. There must be more than that, but invite people to church. Churches that are aggressive, evangelistic churches that care about people getting saved. And I believe that throughout the history of the church, I think I got it right to know this is the way this church has always been. The kind of church that wants to send buses to go get people. The kind of church that wants to ask people to get saved. Yes, we're going to preach the whole counsel of God. We're going to go through big chunks of the Bible. It teaches well as we can. But there ought to be, we ought, ought not just walk in here on Sunday morning and come and just sit down and look forward to our nice music and our nice talk and all of that and then go home and have lunch. That shouldn't be the way it is. There ought to be people out there in the hallway just kind of longingly looking down the hallway, praying that person that you invited to church is going to come this week. And if you do that, there will be many times when you look with longing down that hallway and that person will not come because people are in the grips of darkness and and they're in the grips of sin. It's hard to shake loose of that. But you, what it, I'll tell you, will light up your Lord's Day if you're waiting in the hallway someday for somebody you love and who you care about and you know they need the Lord and you see them come in that door, it'll change your Sunday, friend. You'll be praying for me when I'm preaching. Say it, Pastor. Get it said. Say this. Say it again. You'll be wanting me to go until 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sure of it. How do you, how do, you do this? Let me give you some suggestions. I would suggest these things. Remember, baptistry, balcony, hallway. But these things. See your Christian service in a new light. What you already do. You're already in Awana. You're already a Sunday school teacher. You're already working at Guiding Hands, Pregnancy Refuge. You're already doing youth work. You're already doing financial peace. You're already doing women's Bible studies. You're already doing community celebration. You're already doing Algonquin, Missions Committee, Deacon, your Deacon, Adult Bible Fellowships, and lots of other stuff that I left out. You're already doing that stuff. But do that with a fresh Focus on people who don't know the Lord. Do it with a fresh sense of what could I do connected with this ministry. That little girl that comes in to my Awana and I might just kind of like kind of listen to her verse, but look her in the eyes and think it may be that it's this year that her life will be completely changed. And years from now, if the Lord tarries, that little girl might be a deacon's wife, a pastor's wife, who knows? What would happen? How a missionary and a great, and, and I have not even tapped what could happen to a little girl. But are you thinking like that? Sometimes I think we've got to do what we did before, but we have to do it with a fresh energy, with a fresh vision, with, with, with a fresh understanding of what could happen, especially recognizing lost people that are there. And then again, you might also look at your interests and hobbies in a different, in a different way. Take a fresh look at your interests and hobbies. How many of you, you golf with a couple other Christian guys? And there's nothing wrong with that. We call that fellowship. 
right? I call it ignorance myself. You know, when I golf, it's just, it's just ignorance. But with you, it might be an art form. It might be athletic. And it might, if you're doing it with other believers, that's called fellowship. You ever think about the idea of maybe you have another guy that you invite that is just totally, he's going to turn the air blue, you know, when he shanks the ball. And you're like, we don't like hanging out with him because, man, he just like, listen to his language. Or he lives with a girl. Or he's got this, that, or the other thing. And he just doesn't, he's going to go in the clubhouse and going to want to drink afterward. And so we don't want to hang that well it might be a real good idea for you to include somebody in your golf so that he can see what you do when you shank the ball and what you don't do when you go to the clubhouse and how happy and joyful you are and how much you care about him wouldn't it be wonderful to take your hobby and baptize your hobby and use your hobby as a way to influence other people for the lord that would be so exciting it would also make it legitimate. Isn't that a great idea? Um, you're running your, 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 your Red Wings games or your, your Tigers games. Wouldn't it be something to go to Tigers game, but instead of just going and, you know, going with a Christian friend, why don't you get that ticket and you invite a, an unbeliever to go with you? And the whole deal is he's just loving them and he's spending time with them and you'll listen to their story and maybe someday they'll listen to your story and you can lovingly share the gospel with them. And wouldn't that just be a cool way to, they would just make it, even, a, even if the Tigers lost and they traded away their best players or something, it'd still be very exciting, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Amen. That's the amen part right there. You guys are slow, slow train today. Uh, start praying for friends and for family members. There are people. Listen, people are spiritual beings. They have deep spiritual urges. They were created with the built-in spiritual hungers. Many of them right now, Holy Spirit's working with them, and there's spiritual hunger in their life right now that they don't really know how to define. They don't understand it. I get coffee at McDonald's a lot of times, so I'm going through McDonald's. Girl in the Window, let young lady in the window. I visit with her. Say, how you doing? Girl there this morning had a Buckeye shirt on. I go, are you a Buckeye? She goes, it depends. Are you a Buckeye or not? I'm like, that's not a real Buckeye. Anyway, so anyway, I was going through there one morning and it got talking to the, to the woman that was there, a friendly lady. And I said, what's your name? And she said her name was Beth. And so I talked with her some. And one day I was going through her, just being friendly to her. She said to me, well, what kind of work do you do? I said, well, you know, I, you know that church down there in the right corner of uh, Telegraph in Pennsylvania? Everybody knows where this church is. I go, yeah. She goes, yeah. Wow, that big brick. Yeah. I go, I, I give the talk there on Sunday. And you ought to come and hear it sometime. I would love that if you'd come and hear me. She's like, <laughs> she kind of laughed. Give me that kind of like, you know, whatever. So about every, every day I'd go, I'd see her. I was friendly to her. But about once a month I'd say to her, you going to come hear me give the talk sometime? And one day I drove through there. She said something really significant. She goes, what time does services start? I thought that was kind of cool. I'm like, a, well, I, my talk's at, in the 11 o'clock hour, and Lois and I are sitting over there, ready for worship one day. I remember this really well. We're just sitting there, getting ready to enjoy the singing and the worship, and I looked up, and there she came, Beth. She walked right, sit down right there, and she didn't see me. So I was standing there, worshiping, singing, and watching her, and my heart just went out to her. I started to pray, God, help her to understand the things of God. Help her to feel loved and accepted here. Help her not to be thrown off by our singing and our songs. Help her to understand those things. And it was kind of cool because while we were singing this song, I looked over at her, stole a glance over that way, and she was looking up at the screen and tears were just running down her face. She gave her for a number of weeks. She brought her son back. And she was transferred to Georgia. I'm telling you, there are thousands of people. You know them and I know them. You don't have to be Billy Graham to reach them because they're spiritual people. They're spiritual beings they have tears ready to jump out of their eyes and course down their face because they're spiritual beings and they need to know about Jesus and they ought to know about Jesus. And somebody told you about him. 
And so you could just invite people. We're going to give you a little card. We get these printed up, give you little cards to invite people. And I would hope there are hundreds of invitations that go out for Easter. We're going to have breakfast that are going to Sunday school hour. Then we're going to have church at 11. And I hope that you will help me, and we will give out hundreds of invitations for Easter. It is possible. It's a stretch, but it is possible that on Easter Sunday we could have our, our building here just fall. And what a celebration. What a day. That would be a symbolic way. Start inviting friends, coworkers, neighbors, family members. Uh, do, try some new things, Bible studies. Instead of, like, going and hanging out with the same Christian friend at work, tell that Christian friend, hey, let's pray together, and then, then you go and talk with somebody else, and I'll go talk with somebody else. We'll meet up later. We'll talk about it and try to be an influence for the Lord. When I worked in a secular world, I remember trying to be an influence on the, mostly there were women that I worked with. And I tried to love them and be kind to them and befriend them, and a lot of them had been hurt real badly, and they, were, they didn't really trust men very much. And uh, I would take time and try to talk to them. Talk. Well, sometime, one of them, one time, and a bunch of them got together and got in a car, and they came all the way up an hour away where I lived, and they came in and walked into one of our services. One of them was a Jewish girl. Came and walked into our services and came, and they heard the gospel. I just know there are people that you work with, and you have the privilege of being around these precious people. You work with them, or, or you teach them, or you coach them, and they admire you. They love you. They're your friend. And you could nudge them toward the Lord. Try some new things. Prepare yourselves. What could happen? Only God knows what could happen. Only God knows. I was driving back from Camp Barakel one day, speaking up there for the weekend, and uh, it was out of cell phone range. And so as we drove back down toward Twin Branch and came back into cell phone range, my phone lit up. I had messages. One of them was from my sister, Melanie. And so I took my phone, called Melanie back. At the time, my brother-in-law, Jim, and Melanie were with ABWE, and they were trying to get to uh, Australia as missionaries. They, they happened to be in Knox County, Ohio. Knox County, where I had spent 10 years of my youth laboring to influence people for the Lord. Knox County. They were at Faith Baptist Church, a regular Baptist church there in Knox County. They presented their work, their, their mission field. Melanie said to me, Kenny, you're not going to believe what happened. She said, after we were all done, this couple came up to me, Scott and Julie Zimmerman. They had a teenage boy named Zach. They wanted me to tell you that they never forgot the things that you told them in the six-week Bible study when you were here. It was because of that and some other things that God used that they came to know the Lord as their Savior. Can you imagine the happiness in my soul when I realized that? I always think about stores like that. What a beautiful thing that is. I decided that I would call the church this week and see if they're still walking with the Lord. What's up with that? And so I called, and the youth pastor was there, a guy named Matt Otto. He'd been there about 12 years. The youth pastor had been there 12 years. I said to him, you know a family named Scott and Julie Zimmerman? He goes, yes, absolutely, some of our finest people. He says, I'm very picky about who gets on our youth staff. He said, only people that get on our youth staff are people that have a really solid Christian testimony, and they have served on our youth staff for years here. They're solid Christian people. He said, why don't I give you Scott's cell phone number, and why don't you call him? I know he would love to hear from you. And so my privilege on Friday, as I finished writing this message, was to call Scott Zimmerman on the phone and just say to him, tell me what's going on in your life. I asked him if he would, and what he told me was very precious, how God saved him and what God did. Used a team of people, different circumstances. Julie's mother, Joyce Anderson was her name, started coming to our church. She was as faithful as could be. She eventually passed away. She had a bunch of kidney dialysis. I would go visit her in the hospital many, many times. She eventually passed away. I preached her funeral. They were there that day, some of the leaders in our church, and, and I was there obviously preaching a funeral. Scott and Julie and Zach were there, obviously, at Julie's mother's funeral that day. They sent me an email. 
I want you to see their picture today, and I want you to hear the email that they sent me. Hi, Ken. It was great to hear from you after all these years, and to know how your family's doing. Then it seems such a long time ago we were coaching the boys baseball in Howard. Julie and I wanted to share with you that after the death of Joyce, her mother, something was eating at us. And we knew there was just something missing in our lives. Understand, often people are open when the crisis comes in their life. And all those seeds that you sow kind of helps people remember when they go through the death of a loved one or some great loss. So we decided to go to church. You already moved out of state up north. Lots of laughs. Go Bucks. So some friends from work asked us to go to church with them. That couldn't have been that hard. Hey, why don't you go to church with us? And they were ready to go. Okay. They'd heard the gospel many times. They had Christian family members. They were still outside of Christ. But they were ready to go to church when they were invited. Because they had something hanging in their soul. They were just waiting for somebody to invite them to church. Think about that. I love that. The pastor was preaching from the book of Revelation. On the way home, we talked about how scary that was. And we didn't want to get left behind. I knew you'd like that, Lois. She wants me to scare people to Jesus really bad every week. Three weeks later, we accepted Christ into our hearts, and two weeks later, our son Zach did the same. How cool is that? We laugh now about how we were scared into the open arms of Jesus. We never would have, we never would have had our blinders removed if it hadn't been for you, Pastor Ken, because you invited us to that six-week Bible study, and every week you patiently answer our questions, And also, every week, you laid out a clear gospel message. If it wasn't for those seeds that you sowed, we would still be lost. I asked about Zach. I said, what's he doing? They said he's a Navy petty officer. He's married now. He's married a believer. He's a little baby. He's heavily involved in humanitarian relief effort in Haiti. And uh, he's on the uh, Carter Hall ship. That's Zach. So, my question to you is, do you think there might be any... Scott and Julie and Zach Zimmerman type people in your life out there, you think? Can you tell me, please, can anybody here please tell me what you could do that would be more exciting, more fulfilling, more fun, more significant, more important than doing something to get somebody closer to Jesus Christ? Can anybody here tell me something more exciting than that? I don't think you can. And that's why Paul put it like this in Acts 26, verses 17 and 18. Now I send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God gives you a holy resolution to be used of God in that way. We have a tradition here in our church that we often have practiced through the years, and that is to have what we call a public invitation at the close. If you're a Christian already, then I'm sure you're going to want to be praying. Because there might be people here who aren't Christians yet. Or they're just confused. They need, they need help. They need somebody to give them counsel. On 27th of November, uh, last year, one of the happiest days of my life, one of the happiest experiences I ever had, happened right here in this building. Happened right there in that aisle. My daughter Heidi and I walked down that aisle together. I will never, as long as I live, forget the joy and the absolute happiness of that moment coming down that aisle. When Heidi and I got ready to come down that aisle back there in the back, her face was so beautiful, so joyful, so eager, so happy. She could not wait to get down this aisle. 
She wanted to walk that aisle right there. And why was that? Because her groom was here waiting for her and she loved him. And she wanted to be with him for the rest of her life. So she eagerly walked down that aisle. And today I want to give you, if you're outside of Christ, an opportunity to come to your groom, the Lord Jesus, by walking that aisle. Or whatever aisle you're sitting on. Pastor Pine's going to come. He's going to lead us in a closing song. And while the song is being sung, I ask you, if you need to know the Lord as your Savior, you'd like somebody to show you how to be saved, you're confused about that, come forward down the aisle while we're singing.